morning. Thanks to Council for accommodating our desire to get a little bit of a head start here. Uh, I'll note that Justice Berger's recused in this case. Uh, this time, uh, the case is State versus Gibbs, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Zachary Dunn here on behalf of the state. This case asks whether an expert in forensic chemistry may testify that, in her expert opinion, fentanyl is an opiate. The Court of Appeals erred in concluding that the trial court abused its discretion in allowing the expert testimony in question. Further, there was no reliability concerns or discovery violations with Ms. West's testimony, and this court should reverse. The Court of Appeals majority here found that the trial court abused its discretion when it permitted Ms. West, a witness who is qualified as an expert in forensic chemistry, to testify that fentanyl was an opiate. <clears throat> At trial, the state believed that this testimony was necessary because the controlling st uh, statute as written at that time uh, made it unlawful uh, to traffic in opium or opiates, uh, but, not, but did not mention opioids. Now that has since changed. Uh, there was an amendment in 2018. Um, after you know the, the crime charged here. Um, but as this court is well aware of the abuse of discretion standard, it's a very high standard and it's only met upon a showing of uh, that the trial court's ruling was manifestly unsupported by reason and could not be the result of a reasoned decision. And that's what the Court of Appeals said here. They said that it was not a reasoned decision to allow uh, Ms. West, a forensic chemist, to testify uh, that fentanyl was and is an opiate. Um, Miss West's qualifications, I would like to go through them very quickly for your honors. It's uh, in the transcript at pages 199 through 207. Uh, Miss West had a master's degree in chemistry and had worked for nearly 16 years at the state crime lab, which included um, testifying as an expert over 100 times and working on 12,000 cases. I think one important uh, characteristic about her qualifications is that she testified that she had uh, um, she had attended at least three recent classes regarding opiates and had also attended a workshop that was specific to fentanyl identification. And so uh, this court in McGrady from 2016 was really clear uh, that you know whatever the source of a witness's knowledge the question remains the same uh, does the witness have enough expertise to be in a, a better position than the trier of fact to have an opinion on the subject. And that's our submission here, and that's what the uh, dissent uh, from Chief Judge Stroud would have found, uh, that Miss West's qualifications, uh, her uh, extensive experience, and her training in opiates and fentanyl made her, uh, placed her in a better position than the, uh, than the jury to know whether or not fentanyl was an opiate. How do we balance that with the experts' own admission that there were some areas in which she was testifying that were outside of the scope of her training and that she was even giving some opinions in areas that she was frank in saying that uh, they were not areas of her expertise. Well, McGrady says just that she must be in a better uh, position than the trier of fact to uh, know the question at issue. Um, and, you know, I think we think the state's position is Chief Judge Stroud did a really good job in her footnote three uh, where the majority went through um, some hesitation that Miss West um, had during her testimony. Um, but uh, Chief Judge Stroud really um, was, was clear and we think correct in saying that those were really um, overstated by the majority. Yeah. Miss West did testify that she would have classified fentanyl as an opiate. Um, so that, you know, that testimony was clear. But do we therefore just, as a court, um, look at that candor as just being a part of her expert opinion, or is there something substantive about the fact that, for example, the expert said that fentanyl could be, uh, on one hand, an opiate, and then on the other hand, it could be uh, something else, but in this particular case, it would be an opiate. Uh, how do we look at that in terms of balancing whether or not in this kind of a case, 
whether or not an expert is exceeding his or her realm of expertise or not. Well, right. I think she said it could be either an opiate or an opioid, but in this case, she would classify it as an opiate. Uh, you know, I really think that that's a jury question. You know, it goes to her credibility. The jury can weigh whether or not they believe her testimony because she had some of that hesitancy. But the question was, or the question for this court is whether the trial court abused its discretion in finding her qualified to give the testimony that she did. And so, you know, that hesitancy, it's, it's definitely in the transcript. We, of course, don't agree or don't disagree with that. Um, but that's, uh, that's not the correct standard to look at um, for an abuse of discretion. That, that really goes back to the trier of fact and whether or not they believe her that fentanyl is an opiate given her hesitancy in some other places of her testimony. Well, if there's the hesitancy, then while I know you say that should be resolved by the jury, but still under Rule 702A uh, of the Rules of Evidence, actually isn't that an area that needs to be addressed even before the expert is recognized as being an expert in a stated field and that field being stated and then having the expert to, again, with her candor here, exceeding that area of expertise? Well, Your Honor, we would note that there was no 702A objection here. That was not made at the trial court, so we would say that it's waived. Uh, the uh, the um, expert was qualified as an expert in forensic chemistry, and so really the only answer I have for you is there. Because she was accepted as an expert and there was no 702A objection, uh, that, that hesitancy just has to be dealt with by the jury. Um, I did want to mention two areas in where the majority of the Court of Appeals, in, in our opinion, uh, went wrong. The first was, um, as we've talked about a little bit here today already, um, the, the majority did not review for an abuse of discretion, although it said it was doing that. Um, it really parsed specific questions and answers of the witness and did its own weighing to determine whether or not those two Court of Appeals judges would have allowed Ms. West to testify uh, that uh, fentanyl is an opiate. But that's not what the, you know, the appellate court is supposed to do on the abuse of discretion standard. So that's, that's our first concern. And the second um, is that the majority overstated Ms. West's hesitancy. And I would again point to footnote three from, uh, from Chief Judge Stroud's dissent on that. Um, and those two, um, you know, actions by the majority really contravene uh, this court's case in Morgan, um, you know, which says that it's not necessary that an expert be experienced in the identical subject matter at issue uh, as long as the expert witness, because of his or her expertise, is in a better position to have an opinion on the subject. We think Ms. West clearly had, was in a better position to be uh, an expert on this, and, and because of that, uh, the trial court did not abuse its discretion, and, and on the flip side, the, the Court of Appeals majority erred by finding that abuse of discretion. <clears throat> Unless there are any further questions on that, I would like to turn. There is some issues in the briefing about whether this court can or should um, address the, the two other issues uh, that, although were not specifically um, mentioned in the majority, uh, were, did animate Chief Judge Stroud's dissent, and that is uh, the reliability issue and the discovery violation issue. Um, before, I'm, I'm sorry, but before you turn to that, I do have one other question about whether this expert's own testimony indicates that she was qualified to testify about the, um, whether fentanyl is an opiate. But, and as I understand the terms of the statute in effect at the time, mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm looking at 90-87, um, print 18, I, and I apologize if I'm not getting this, this site exactly right, but the definition of opiate in the statute means any substance having an addiction forming or addiction sustaining liability similar to morphine or being capable of conversion into a drug having addiction forming or addiction sustaining liability. And then it says what it doesn't include. Isn't the question not whether she was trained as a chemist to identify the chemical substance, but whether she knew that it has addiction-forming or addiction-sustaining 
liability similar to morphine. So in other words, the impact of the substance on human beings. And isn't that where she was saying, you know, I can tell you chemically what it is. I'm not an expert on what it does in the body. Well, I think she did, respectfully, Your Honor, um, address some of that. And I, I would, I guess, at the outset say that, you know, that's a 702A objection that was not made at trial. Um, but, but doesn't it go to whether, so, so there's a question of whether she can testify at all, but then there's also a question of what she can testify to, yes, correct? Sir. And so isn't it still an um, issue of whether the trial, trial judge, again, I hear you that it's an abuse of discretion standard, but did, you know, if he couldn't he have abused his discretion in allowing her to testify to matters that are outside her area of expertise? Uh, he could have. We believe that he didn't in this case. Um, you know, there was a voir dire testimony by Ms. West, and there was also her testimony in front of uh, the jury about her qualifications. And although, again, you know, we don't dispute that there was some hesitancy in her, uh, her some of her answers, she did talk about uh, receptor sites um, and how the effects on the brain, those sorts of things. So we, we do think that it was not an abuse of discretion uh, for the trial judge looking at that testimony uh, and hearing it in front of him uh, to determine that Miss West uh, was permitted to testify as she did. Um, and were there any objections? There was an objection to her testimony. It was not very clear what the objection was. I think the substance of the objection was, you know, objection the same as the earlier today or something like that. Um, so, th you know, there was some objection to her testimony, but then um, later on in her testimony, she gave very similar answers and there was no objection to, uh, to, to that testimony. So, um, you know, we think that that is an issue in the case as well. Um, on those two other issues, the reliability and discovery violation issue, uh, you know, we think it's before this court properly under uh, rule of Appellate Procedure 16B because it's, it was specifically set out in the dissenting opinion as a basis for that dissent. Uh, and we would also, you know, make a judicial economy argument because these two other issues are so bound up with the first. I mean, they're all really asking whether or not Ms. West was permitted to give this testimony. Uh, and then finally, uh, Your Honors granted the state's uh, petition for it of certiorari. So we think that, you know, even, even absent um, it being a basis for the dissent under 16B, it's properly before this court. Um, on that reliability issue, you know, we've been talking about it a little bit today. I would just say one more time uh, that there was no 702A objection at trial, and, and really the only concern is whether Ms. West's qualifications to testify uh, that fentanyl was an opiate, and that really collapses into the first issue. So we don't see it as, as distinct from the first issue. Um, you know, her testimony was, uh, reliable, she, she gave her, her qualifications, uh, and she was certainly in a better position than the trier fact to know whether or not fentanyl was an opiate. Um, and then finally on that discovery violation issue, um, as Chief Judge Stroud said in her dissent, um, the defendant cloaks his objections to Ms. West's expertise in the shroud of a discovery issue. So we, we agree with that. Uh, we would adopt that and, and think really, you know, all three of these issues are the same issue, whether or not Ms. West was permitted to testify as she did. Um, you know, under 15A903, it's the controlling discovery statute, requires the state to give notice of its expert um, that it's going to call a trial, and uh, the state shall furnish to the defendant a report of the results of any examinations or tests. And that, ex that happened here. There was a disclosure that Ms. West would testify. Uh, and uh, the report that she uh, produced at the crime lab uh, after the tests that were run on the, on the substances uh, was given over to uh, the defense. So really, like Chief Judge Stroud said, we think that, um, you know, really this is all about whether, you know, an objection to Ms. West's expertise to testify that fentanyl is an opiate. Um, I would like to talk about State versus Garrett and then Barring any further questions, I'll sit down. Uh, State versus Garrett uh, is a Court of Appeals opinion from 2021. This court denied discretionary review on that. We think another way to dispose of this case is for this court to adopt the reasoning of State versus Garrett, um, which, uh, in which the Court of Appeals considered whether fentanyl qualifies, and this is a quote, fentanyl qualifies 
as an opium or opiate or any salt compound derivative or preparation of opium or opiate. And the court um, you know, noted that there was significant overlap between the terms opiate and opioid uh, and held that 90-95H4, which is the same statute and the same version of the statute that was at issue here, uh, encompass, quote, encompasses any drug that produces opium-like effect by binding to the opiate receptors in the brain, which would include both drugs naturally derived from opium, such as morphine, as well as synthetic and semi-synthetic drugs, such as fentanyl. So, so what was the, uh, the dissent's purpose in discussing Garrett? Was it to say, as a court of appeals uh, this case, that Garrett was controlling, because the court of appeals must follow its own, was it was that the purpose to say we just have to follow this, doesn't matter, we don't ask whether it makes sense here or not, or was the dissent saying this reasoning Garrett should be adopted, for example, by this court, which doesn't have to follow court of appeals precedent? What do you think the dissent was saying there? Yeah, it's it's a little unclear to me. You know, she Chief Judge Stroud, Stroud in her dissent, goes carefully through the three issues that I've already talked about here today, and then the last few paragraphs are really, um, I, I believe, I, I don't remember her exact phrasing, but it's something like another way to dispose of this case, something like that, and then she discusses Garrett. So uh, it's standing up here, it's hard for me to say that she thought that she was bound by Garrett, um, and of course this court isn't. <laughs> um, but we would we would say it's really sound reasoning, and we would we would urge this court to adopt it if uh, if it doesn't agree with any of our or some of our other issues, because in that case the court of appeals, to my mind, conclusively held that uh, subsection H4 encompasses uh, fentanyl. Uh, opiates are covered, or fentanyl is covered as an opiate under the then controlling statute. Um, so, so does that turn it into a legal question rather than a factual question? It does, Your Honor. Uh, that would be sort of our backup argument. You know, if you, if you don't, <laughs> you don't accept our primary submissions, um, then if this court adopted Garrett, it would be a legal question about whether uh, fentanyl qualified as an opiate, and then in that case, the trial court wouldn't have erred if it, it didn't do this here, but if it had instructed the jury that as a matter of law, fentanyl is an opiate, and to take that into consideration and take that as the law. Um, and so, you know, that's, um, that's our submission on Garrett. Um, unless there are any further questions, Your Honors, um, in conclusion, the Court of Appeals erred in holding that the trial court abused its discretion in allowing Ms. West to testify that op uh, fentanyl is an opiate, uh, and Ms. West's testimony was reliable, and the state did not commit a discovery violation. So we would uh, ask this court to reverse. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLE. Please the court. I'm Assistant Appellate Defender Wyatt Orsman, and I represent Mr. Gibbs, the appellee <coughs> in this case. All the issues in this appeal revolve around Ms. West's expert opinion that fentanyl qualified as an opiate under the 2018 trafficking statute. The issues I'd like to focus on today are whether the state provided that opinion in compliance with the discovery statute, whether she was qualified under Rule 702 to give such an opinion, and then whether her opinion was even needed under the Garrett holding. <clears throat> Section 15A-903A2 requires the state to furnish to the defense its experts lab report, CV, the basis for the, um, for the, the, basis for the opinion and the opinion itself. Although the state argues that the trial, excuse me, that the prosecution complied with its discovery obligation of providing Ms. West's opinion to the defense, the transcript clearly torpedoes that argument. What did the majority say about this, Court of Appeals? About the qualifications? About, yeah, on this discovery issue. Or, or the, the discovery issue. Um, they, they said they um, were not going to address the issue. So. Should we address it? Or if we conclude that we need to reach that question, should we 
send it back to the Court of Appeals to give that court the opportunity to address it, a majority of the court. So I, I think this court has several options. I mean, the, the the state has asked this court to consider it because the court, or excuse me, the state considers these questions bound up together. Um, I don't disagree that these questions are closely related. I think this court felt like it was the um, the better use of its of its time and resources to address the issues. I mean, I think that's totally appropriate. I think if this court felt like it needed to hear what the Court of Appeals had to say first, I think remanding it would be perfectly appropriate, assuming um, it disagreed with the state's petition on the, or uh, position on the uh, qualifications issue. Uh, so I, you know, uh, I think this court has sort of all the options on the table. Uh, so immediately after calling the case, the, the prosecutor asked the trial court for an advisory ruling on whether fentanyl qualified as, a, as an opiate under the trafficking statute. And the court deferred making that ruling, saying it needed to know what Ms. West's opinion was before it could make a decision. And in response, the trial court, or excuse me, in response, the, the prosecutor told the court, I haven't talked to her at this time about that issue. Simply put, if, if the, state, the state can't have provided the defense with Ms. West's opinion, if the state didn't know what her opinion was, if, she, if the state hadn't talked with her about whether she believed that fentanyl was an opiate, it's impossible for the state to have previously disclosed that opinion to the defense. But assuming for the sake of argument that the state can give notice of something that it doesn't know, there was no constructive, or excuse me, there was no actual disclosure in this case. It's important to look at the statutory language that the General Assembly chose to craft the discovery statute in. The General Assembly used the verb furnish in describing the state's disclosure obligations. And furnish means to give or to supply. And the, the General Assembly further describes the lab report, the CV, the factual basis, all those things as materials. At no time prior to trial did the state provide the defense, give, supply, equip this, the defense with a piece of paper or a digital copy of a piece of paper that stated Ms. West's opinion that fentanyl qualified as an opiate under the trafficking statute. In the plain language of the statute, no, right, no material stating her opinion was furnished to the defense prior to trial. But with actual notice off the table, the state asks this court to rewrite the discovery statute to provide an exception for constructive notice because the state did provide her CV and the lab report. But this argument fails under Cook, where this court held, or excuse me, re rejected the exact same constructive notice argument that the state makes here. Cook makes clear that the burden is on the state to, to comply with the mandatory disclosure requirements of the discovery statute. The burden is not on the defense to be good guessers. Counsel, if, um, yes, Your Honor. if we were to accept the state's invitation to uh, give our approval to Garrett, um, what would that do to your argument about uh, discovery? The state, the state wants, the, wants his cake and, and eat it too. I mean, the, the state's positions are, are inconsistent, right? She, you know, she, she was, it was perfectly proper for her to, um, to her, for, for her to testify as an expert. She was, she was qualified. There's no reliability issues. And then 
flip-flops and says, oh, but if you don't buy any of that, it's, a, it's an issue of w whether fentanyl is uh, an opiate as a matter of law, is, is, uh, you know, is, is, is where Garrett wants this court to go. Um, as, assuming this court agrees that, um, that the question of whether fentanyl is an opiate under the trafficking statute, assuming that is a question of law, for a court to answer, then I don't think that um, the state was required to give um, give notice of her opinion. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but like this court said in in Cook, the state acted like it was a factual question throughout discovery. It treated everything else that Miss West did as if it would be tendering an expert on a factual question. So, you know, I'd like to get to, to Garrett in, in a second, but, you know, the, the state, the prosecutor treated this as a factual question needing expert testimony. But right? I mean, it, 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 in, in, the, in, in the record, I think on page 24, right, there's the um, I'm probably wrong on the, the page number, but right there's there's the discovery stat uh, disclosure um, statement saying right this is this is what we're this is what we're disclosing to you. But I understood you to say that at the beginning of the trial, the prosecutor actually asked the judge for an opinion, which I assume he'd be asking the judge for a legal opinion. And wasn't it only after the judge said, well, it depends on how she testifies, that then the state had to switch gears and say, okay, well, I guess we need factual testimony on this issue because the court has indicated that it wants an expert to testify about it. Well, I, I think the advisory, the request for an advisory ruling is, is not in, entirely clear. I mean, I, I think the prosecutor is asking, you know, judge, can you, can you help us figure out if this is a factual question or a legal question? I don't think that that's how I read it. I don't. I don't think the. I don't think the. I mean, I don't think the prosecutor was saying, "I believe this to be a legal question, and I need and I want your answer as you know, your answer to that legal question." And then when the court did say it depends on how Ms. West testifies. At that point, wasn't the defendant on notice that this is a subject that might be addressed by expert testimony? And couldn't, at that point, couldn't the defendant have said, well, you know, we, we, we could bring, they could bring their own expert, they could say we need to have discovery about her views on that? Yes. Um, so I, mean, I, I have sort of a layered res response to that. You know, first, the, the discovery statute is, is clear, at least, um, Cook's understanding of the of the statute is clear. You have to you have to provide actual notice, right? Actual disclosure, right? You have to be, provide a piece of paper. There is no constructive disclosure or constructive notice exception, right? Anything else? This court said in Cook invites sandbagging, right? So so first, right? We we've got the problem of there's no actual notice or no actual disclosure. But then we've got the problem of um, Okay, so let's assume for the sake of argument that that constructive notice is on the table. The, the, the record again undermines the state's position, right? If, if Miss West's CV and her lab report were sufficient to give notice of, um, you know, that the state would be providing her expert testimony, then certainly it was sufficient to give notice to both parties, right? To the state and to the defense. But when the, but when the, pro, but when this, when the, the trial court says, I need to hear what her opinion is, he says, I can't tell you, I haven't talked to her yet, right? So if, if her CV and lab report didn't tip off the, the prosecutor as to what her opinion was, it certainly didn't tip off 
the defense. And then you've got the whole problem of timing, right? And, and another issue addressed by Cook, right? There, uh, the disclosure occurred on the Friday before, um, before trial was set to begin on Monday. And this court in Cook said, nope, a weekend to, to scurry around and find an expert and somehow prepare some sort of effective response to expert testimony isn't enough time. That's unreasonable, right? The statute requires disclosure within a reasonable time prior to trial. So we have an even shorter timeline here, right? Uh, it, the case was called on Thursday. There was the, the request for an advisory ruling immediately upon the, 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 the case being called. The state then called Miss, Miss West the very next day, Friday. Right, so if a weekend isn't enough in Cook, then overnight isn't enough in this case. I mean, it, it comes back to anticipation, right? I mean, that's, that's the purpose behind the discovery statutes disclosure requirements, right? Because even, even in the scenario that you mentioned, Justice Earls, maybe it did tip them off that they are going to be presenting opinion testimony that, um, that fentanyl is an opiate. But until they get her opinion, and, and until they get the factual basis for that opinion, they can't prepare an effective response. Right? Cook addressed this too. Talking, uh, it had a burglar, burglary hypothetical. Right? A defendant on trial for burglary might have a right might have an inkling that the state's going to present fingerprint evidence but until it gets the the experts lab report their opinion and the factual basis for that opinion they don't know they can't they can't create or prepare an effective response right they they don't they can't cross-examine or prepare a cross-examination right of of the of the fingerprint expert why do you think this is his why do you think that this is the defendant's fingerprints Right? They, they can't ask any of those questions or begin to formulate those questions. I'll conclude simply by saying that the, the state failed to comply with the discovery obligation of disclosing Ms. West's expert opinion within a reasonable time prior to trial. And the trial court erred in concluding otherwise. As Justice Steeds mentioned, this court has you know, several options on the table of, of how it wants to you know, dispose of this issue, if at all. Um, but let me, no, let me now turn to the uh, Ms. West's qualifications question on, um, under Rule 702. As this court knows- Can you clarify um, for me, what, yep. what uh, does the objection cover in your view, is it the qualification, or is it also the whether the principles and methods of the testimony are reliable? What what's the scope of the objection in your view? Uh, the the scope of the objection was to um, was was to her, her expertise. Um, I, Does that mean we can't we do, can't ask any questions about the reasoning that she then used to? in the testimony? Well, uh, at the Court of Appeals, we raised plain error, and, we, and I argue it in my brief in, in, this, in, in this court, and you know, it's, it's addressed in the state's brief as well. So I mean, I, I, to, the, to the extent that that issue is, is before us, right? I mean, the, the Court of Appeals didn't address it. So to the extent this court you know, decides it wants to talk about the reliability issue, it certainly is free to, but it would be within the context of a you know, plain error analysis, not, um, it, it wasn't properly preserved. Yeah, to be perfectly candid. Yep, uh, so, um, you know, in, in McGrady, this court was, was clear that when the General Assembly amended Rule 702 in 2011, 2011 to make this state a Daubert state, it made deliberate policy decisions 
imposing heightened standards for the admission of expert testimony. And one of those heightened standards is ensuring that witnesses are sufficiently qualified before allowing the trier of fact to consider their, their opinions. And to be qualified, a, a witness must have specialized skill, training, education, experience, knowledge that would assist the trier of fact in understanding some factual issue, resolving some factual issue, understanding what the evidence means. Didn't the expert have that here? No. She, uh, she, she was not qualified in, the, in this case to, to give the challenge testimony. I want to be perfectly clear. I think she was eminently qualified. Ms. West was eminently qualified as an expert in forensic chemical analysis. I think her testimony was perfectly proper in this case. I think the, um, the, the narrow focus in this case is whether she was qualified to give an expert opinion on the specific subject that was dictated by the language of the Controlled Substances Act, which was, does fentanyl have, <clears throat> have addiction forming or addiction sustaining liability similar to morphine? Under the Daubert test, why wouldn't the expert have been sufficiently qualified in that area so as to enhance the jury's understanding of that issue? Because she, she candidly say, I can't, said, I can't speak to, right, those are her words, I cannot speak to addiction forming or addiction sustaining liability. That was the area in which she was the most expressly candid, but in terms of some of the other discussion that she gave in terms of uh, her, her training, leading her to some other aspects of talking about uh, opiate versus opioid, even taking into account her candor about addiction forming and addiction sustaining, why would not, especially in the dearth of a Rule 702A objection by the defendant, why wouldn't she have been at least deemed appropriately qualified uh, to give opinions by the trial court? And if there wasn't a Rule 702A objection, it would be waived. So I want to be perfectly clear about the about the objection and what and what's waived or what's reviewable under plain error. Th there was an objection to uh, to her expertise, right? There was, um, you know, it, it was it was mentioned in the written motion. It was thoroughly litigated uh, at trial. There was a ruling by the trial court on whether she was whether she was an expert or whether she was qualified to give an opinion on the issue of whether fentanyl was, was an opiate. There was absolutely a 702A objection on, on, on expertise grounds, not reliability grounds. There's 100% uh, an objection, uh, you know, to, to the extent that the, that the defense didn't, you know, the state argues that the, the defense didn't object you know, every time she, she mentioned anything about expertise or fentanyl or opium, opiates, you know, it, it's, it, it's preserved by uh, 15A-1444D9. But that was a fundamental objection to her being recognized formally as an expert by the trial court, is that right? Say that again, let me make sure I understand it, you. That was the fundamental objection to her being recognized as an expert at all Right. Yes. A. You know. A. We. Uh, the defense didn't get. Uh, didn't get notice of her expert opinion, and she's not qualified to tell the to tell the jury that fentanyl is an opiate. Okay. But as to her overall recognition as an expert, the, the fundamental objection was she should not have even been recognized to render testimony in the first place as an expert, is that right? That is not correct. No, she, she was absolutely qualified to, to testify ex, as an expert on the chemical analysis, right? She can, she can tell, she's perfectly qualified to tell the jury, you know, I work at the, the state crime lab. 
I ran it through the mass spectrometer and I identified this, this substance as, as fentanyl. Right? I mean, she, I mean she's, she's done that a hundred times. She's worked on 12,000 cases. She's absolutely qualified to do that. What she can't say is fentanyl, the, you know, the, the substance I found that identified as fentanyl, fentanyl is an opiate. That's what she can't say. That's what she's not qualified but didn't, to say. Didn't she testify that she had a general overview of sort of the addictive qualities of these chemicals. I mean, she yeah, said, she, I don't have the specifics. And it seems to me that, um, because I, I've encountered this in talking to people with my life experience, I suspect many trial judges have as well, that oftentimes people with a lot of knowledge in a subject claim that they don't know very much about it, when in fact, they're the people that know absolutely the most about it. So isn't this something where we've left it to trial courts to listen to an expert like that and determine, okay, this, this chemist does have uh, much more knowledge about the subject than the jury will, can assist them by providing this information, and so in my discretion, I'm gonna allow this to assist the jury, even though the witness is saying, I don't know the specifics uh, about this. And isn't that what, what we should be looking at in, in reviewing an abuse of discretion here? No. Uh, first, we don't have any facts suggesting that she was demurring, right, and being Right and being self-deprecating, we don't have we don't have anything that suggests that was going on here. And second, I mean, the, the abuse of abuse of discretion standard isn't a rubble a rubber stamp, right? I mean, I mean, we're we're getting dangerously close to the abuse of discretion standard being the expert said words, the trial court heard the words, and made a ruling. Therefore, it's affirmed, right? You have to, right, it's, in, in, this, in this area, right, the General Assembly has said, look, courts, you have to be, you have to impose higher standards than you have imposing in the past. You, you are the gatekeepers and you have more responsibility than you did before, right? You, you, have, you have to ensure that the experts' qualifications on this specific issue make them competent to give their opinion to, uh, to the fact finder, right? I mean, th that, that I mean, that was the big lift in the 2001 amendments is saying like, look, you've got to impose higher standards, trial courts, right? Not just on reliability, but on qualifications, right? And, you know, th that's, um, you know, I, I mentioned the Benson case in my brief, right? Which says like, look, the, the focal point of the qualifications analysis is, is the connection between this person's expertise and the subject of their proposed testimony, right? Here, that specific subject, the specific subject that, that the defense was challenging was whether fentanyl was qualified as an opiate under the, the 2018 uh, trafficking statute. So she had to be competent in, she had to be qualified, she had to have specialized skill, training, knowledge, experience, you know, about whether fentanyl had addiction-forming or addiction-sustaining liability similar to morphine. When asked if she had that, she said no. Counsel, your argument seems to assume that it's not a question of law whether um, fentanyl is an opiate. Why shouldn't we regard it as a question of law? So I, I, I think... It, I think it's important to give, in answering your question, let me make sure the context is clear. The, the, the Controlled Substances Act was amended several times piecemeal you know, in um, 2017 and 18. And so, uh, What we are dealing with in Mr. Gibbs' case is not, a, not analogous to what occurred in the Garrett case, where the Court of Appeals said that fentanyl qualified as a matter of law. Right? In, um, in, the, <clears throat> in the Garrett case, Section 
90-95, H4, H <coughs> outlawed the trafficking in opium, heroin, and opiates. Schedule 2, 90-90, subsection 2H, defined fentanyl as an opiate. So you didn't even have to look at section 90-87's uh, definition of an opiate to know that fentanyl was an opiate because the statutory language told you fentanyl was an opiate. But the CSA was amended in 2017 and you know the, the, the version that was in effect at the time of Mr. Gibbs' possession of the backpack containing the fentanyl was different, right? The, the 2017 amendment changed all that. Section 90-95, H4, the trafficking statute, it still outlawed heroin, opiates, opium. But Schedule 2 listed fentanyl in a group of drugs classified in, this, in the disjunctive, in the disjunctive, either opiates or opioids. So you could, so you had to look at the statutory definitions of opiates and opioids to know which class fentanyl fell into. Right? That's that that brings this case out. That brings this case out of Garrett. Right? We we know, you know, looking at that at those definitions, if fentanyl has addiction forming or addiction sustaining liability similar to morphine, it's an opiate. If fentanyl has is a um, synthetic narcotic drug with, with opium-like or opiate-like activities but is not derived from opium, it's an opioid. How do you answer those questions by looking at just the statutory language? You can't, right? You have to look at facts. You have to look at data, right? You have to look outside the statute. You, lo you look at medical uh, studies, pharmacological studies, Right? The, the, the statutory language that was in effect at the time of Mr. Gibbs' case is radically, I mean, radically different than what, it, than, than what it said at the time of Garrett. Right? In Garrett, you can't, traffic you can't traffic opiates and fentanyl is an opiate. You didn't have to look outside the statute to know fentanyl was an opiate. But in Mr. Gibbs' case, it says, you know, you can't, traffic in, you can't traffic in opiates. Fentanyl could be an opiate or an opioid. So you gotta look at the definitions and you gotta look at facts to see if fentanyl was, uh, was an opiate. So, you know, fentanyl might be an opiate as a matter of fact, making expert testimony perfectly proper, but it isn't under this, under the, CS, the, effect, the, the version of the CSA in effect at the time of, the, of this case, it wasn't a, an opiate as a matter of law. Um, under this court's decisions in- Thank, uh, thank in, you, counsel. I believe your time's expired. Yep, thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court. I have three points if I can get to them. <laughs> um, the first one, Justice Earls, to your question about whether the state treated this as a question of fact or a question of law, I think it's clear in the transcript that uh, the state uh, before trial treated this as a question of law. It asked for an advisory opinion from the trial court about whether fentanyl qualifies as an opiate. And <clears throat> if you look at the transcript, uh, when, when defense counsel was asked his position uh, on the issue, he said, um, and I'm, this is not exact quoting, but the substance is, I think we need to hear from an expert and what she has to say about the issue. So, uh, and then the trial court ultimately agreed and said, you know, I think that we need some expert witness testimony on this. So, the, by the time the state knew that expert witness testimony was going to be needed, uh, to uh, determine whether or not fentanyl is an opiate, um, everyone was on the same page. The state learned that at the exact same second 
uh, that the defense did and because of the defendant's argument at trial. Um, so that's the point we would make on that. Uh, second, Justice Allen, to your question about if, if this uh, court adopted Garrett, what would that do to the discovery issue? Uh, our position is it would do away with all of the other issues. You know, if this court holds that uh, under H4, uh, as a matter of law, fentanyl uh, is an opiate, uh, that, would, that would get rid of all of the issues because the trial court could have instructed the jury that it was an opiate uh, and, and that wouldn't have, uh, have you know, been improper. I will say, if you look at the reasoning of Garrett, it wasn't as simple as, well, you look, uh, you know, it was uh, fentanyl is an opiate, this says you can't do, you can't traffic in opiates, and that's the end of the matter. The reasoning really uh, was, you know, the term opiate in 90-95 H4, um, as relevant here, uh, is uh, it covers synthetic and semi-synthetic drugs such as fentanyl. So there was a much deeper analysis uh, that we think is correct and that this court should adopt. And if the court would do that, uh, it would do away with all the other issues in the case. Uh, finally, um, the question by Justice Dietz um, about you know the scope of the objection. Um, and I want to make clear, I did say earlier there was no 702A objection. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, there was no analysis, you know, going one through three, whether the testimony was based on sufficient facts or data, uh, whether it was a product of reliable principles and methods, and whether those methods and principles were applied correctly. There was no analysis of that. There was no uh, talk of that uh, at, at the trial court. So it really is only about the qualifications issue. And, and so for the, the, the reasons that we've already stated, uh, we believe that uh, Ms. West was qualified as an expert to and was in a better position uh, than the jury uh, to know whether fentanyl was an opiate. So unless there are questions, I'll just. Yes, I do have one yes, other yeah. question. <laughs> um, and you didn't um, address this in the reply brief, I don't think, but I just am curious that the state's position with regard to um, footnote 11 in the defendant's brief, which said that, um, of course, possession of fentanyl doesn't go unpunished. That is, if, if this court were to decide that under the statute, in effect, at the time, it was a factual issue, um, and if it's if it's not um, an opiate, um, it just doesn't. Here, the footnote says it just doesn't count as trafficking in heroin, opium, opium, or an opiate. Simple possession is a class one misdemeanor, cites the statute, and possession with intent to sell or delivery is a class H felony. Do you do you agree that's correct? Uh, yes, with a couple of qualifications. Um, of course, like Your Honor's question mentioned, this has since been amended, uh, so the statute, I think, now unambiguously covers fentanyl. But, you know, simple possession of fentanyl is a misdemeanor and is very different than being convicted of trafficking. You know, if this court were to adopt the defendant's position and the Court of Appeals majority's position, uh, it would not have been illegal to traffic in fentanyl in 2018. Uh, that's the essential position advocated by the defendant here. Um, so, but, but it would have been illegal to possess with the intent to sell or deliver. I, I, believe, that's, I believe that's correct, Your Honor. As I'm standing here, I think, that, I, I think I can agree with that. But, you know, our point would be about trafficking, which is what, what was charged here. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the thought that the General Assembly would not want trafficking in fentanyl to be uh, a crime in 2018 or 2017 uh, we think would be an absurd result as well. So um, unless there are any further questions, we would uh, urge the court to reverse. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both.